episode 189 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Fly with Garmin Avionics, then grab your mobile device and make the Garmin Pilot app your cockpit companion. Get advanced functions you'll use before, during, and after every flight, including updating your aircraft's databases and logging engine data, plan, file, fly, log, with Garmin Pilot. The Pilot the Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Points. You can get a free three-day trial of the Ground School app by visiting learnthefinerpoints.com. Steve Giordano, uh, ferry pilot extraordinaire. AV Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. Today's intro is coming to you live. Well, not live. I'm recording it live. You're listening to it recorded from Bedford, Massachusetts, sitting in the hotel here at 9.30 p.m. on Monday. It's been a crazy week of flying and just a bunch of other things, and I uh, didn't have time to record it. So here we are recording this. Uh, this episode was awesome. I'm talking with Steve from Speed Tape Films on Instagram and YouTube. Give them a follow. Such a fast fascinating story and what he's done in his career and how he's traversed it and how he's just always kind of moved on to the next greatest and best thing until he has found what he's currently doing right now and fairing big metal airplanes which is just very fascinating career and just it just continues to show how you can do so many cool things in this industry save nation i hope you enjoyed today's episode if you do please leave us a review on itunes add this to a playlist on itunes and spotify whatever podcast playlist you have just throw this in there that definitely helps the rankings for the show and more people to notice it and check out pilots coffee we have some ground coffee coming out here soon so be on the lookout we're designing the bags right now it's going to be epic uh it is just as good it's different blends but it's going to be unbelievable so i can't wait for the ground coffee to come out. Aviation, I don't want to keep you any longer. So any further ado, here's Steve. Steve, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Hey, Justin, what's happening? Not much. I'm excited to have you on. Excited to share your story and uh, kind of talk about the extraordinaire of uh, who Steve is. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we've been talking about it a while. I'm glad, I'm glad uh, we finally made it happen here. Yeah, so let's go ahead and uh, get started. Why aviation? What was your original poll into aviation? Oh, man, I, you know, I was obsessed as, you know, from the very beginning. Uh, you know, I think back as far as I can. We, we had family down in Atlanta. I live in the Philadelphia area. And I grew up flying Eastern Airlines back and forth between, you know, Philly and Atlanta. And um, I, I, I could care less about the trip to Atlanta always. It was always about the airplane, right? So I look back on the days of DC-9s and the 727s going down there with my mom. And um, it just, you know, it just, it just sparked an interest that, that I couldn't contain. And, uh, it, you know, it moved from that to, you know, reading books, asking for books for my birthday and for, for Christmas and, and uh, learning everything I could about airplanes, building models, swinging them from my ceiling. Um, and then, you know, once I hit about 10, um, I, I would beg my mother to drive me down to Philly International, hang out outside of... Uh, outside of the fence there, just behind the approach, approach end of uh two, six left and just watch airplanes land all day, you know, and, and it really never faded. I mean, I still look up every time one flies over, believe it or not. So at what age do you, would you consider yourself a full blown av geek? Um, man, I would, I would have to say probably like, like six, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I've been flying, uh, professionally. Well, I mean, flying really since I was about 18. I started flying when I was 18 uh, with a private license. And, and uh, so it's, it's been a little while now. 
Did your friends think you're crazy while they're just like watching cartoons and uh, playing video games or Atari or whatever the the, the the game system that was out when you were younger? How would they think you're crazy? And you're just like, let's go look at planes. They're like, no, <laughs> let's not. <laughs> yeah, somewhat. As a matter of fact, I used to I used to have this little trick where I used to be able to identify usually with pretty good accuracy what kind of plane was flying over by the sound. And I remember uh, one time in particular, I was having a sleepover at my friend's house. I must have been probably about ten or eleven. And uh, I remember, I remember hearing an airplane fly over, and I said, "That's a 727." And he goes, "Shut up!" <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, I don't know if I was right or not, but I was normally, I was more normally pretty close. You know, what's pretty funny about that is, is that you could probably say whatever plane you wanted. You could make up a plane, and they'd be like, "Wow, how did you know that?" You know, it's like, yeah, because oh, there's yeah. no way to really prove it. I'm sure they didn't have uh, what is it? Uh, is it not Flight Aware, but Radar 24? I think they have an app where you can point <laughs> it up on the plane. It'll tell you exactly what it is. What's flying above you? But I'm guessing yeah, they didn't was, have that when you were 10. No, no, this was the mid 80s at that point. So yeah, we had nothing like that whatsoever. But, you know, uh, I, I could always tell an RB211 from a JT8, you know, from <laughs> wherever. That's awesome. <laughs> it is what it is. You're more av geek than me for sure. I, I can just, uh, I can tell you what a plane looks like. Most of the planes by what they look like. But if you give me a sound, I can tell you the plane I fly based on the engines and how they sound when they start up. But once it's started, there's no chance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I hear you, man. Yeah. What um so what's what came next? So obviously you had this love aviation. Uh you wanted to do this city get a private at 18. What was the filler yeah. that you had between like 10 and 18? How did you keep fostering this or was it always just like I'm going to be I'm going to do this. I'm going to go fly. Uh but no, was there anything it, in particular you did to kind of like keep it going? There definitely was. There definitely was. So uh it's actually actually a funny story. Uh my barber um, guy just down the street, I would walk to the barber shop to get my hair cut every couple of weeks, you know, and, um, he was a private pilot and he had, um, he didn't have an airplane, but I mean, he rented aircraft from the flight school over at flying W airport in South Jersey. And he took me and my mom up once and we, we went up in the Cessna 172 and I, you know, I was of course blown away by it. And, you know, I always wanted to go get my hair cut to talk about this stuff. And we would talk about everything from, you know, VOR navigation to, I mean, you name it. I mean, anything that I could think of, I would read about something. And I mean, he was, you know, I didn't know any airline pilots. I mean, he was like the aviation god at the time. I mean, a guy who was cutting my hair at a private license. His name was Patrick. Um, and, and I mean, I could still visualize the guy. He had kind of a, a Tom Selleck mustache. Um, lost touch with him, you know, after childhood. But, uh, you know, that was that was big. I did uh, I did the Civil Air Patrol thing for a little while, but we really didn't have a very active unit here where I was. So I mean, I kind of lost interest in that. But you know, I mean, the goal was always to fly, and and I mean, from the beginning, I, I pretty much set my sights on it. And and you know, of course, I, I didn't really have an interest in military aviation, but I but I did have an interest in commercial aviation, and I just was always kind of looking for the right path to do that. Um, so, you know, in college I started taking, you know, flying lessons and I got my private and, and commercial and CFI like anybody else. And I flight instructed for a few years, uh, you know, instrument instructor, multi-engine instructor. Um, and, and really, you know, the timing for me getting into the industry and maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but, um, it, it, it really all kind of, if you remember, I don't, I don't know how old you are, Justin. I mean, I would assume you're maybe a little younger than me, 31. but, um, what's that? 31. I was born in 1990. Uh, Okay. Okay. So like when you were about like at my av geek prime at like 10, 11, I was, I was kind of at the point where I was flight instructing and there was a, there was, you know, there were a lot of opportunities like United just had this huge contract and 
I mean, everybody's hiring like gangbusters, you know, before 9-11. And I thought my, my path was assured. Um, but just as I was kind of getting, you know, to the point where, where, where I'd have, an, you know, where I'd have enough experience to get on with a regional, um, things started falling apart. You know, now I was actually a flight instructor on 9-11. I was flying um, uh, over like Colts Neck VOR, you know, which is like just south of the city. And, and, and we saw the smoke coming out of the towers, you know, not to go too off topic here, but like, I mean, you know, we, we were right there and, and, and continued, I had a commercial student, we were doing Shondells and all that stuff. And, and I remember, you know, we were kind of using that. I was like, man, I think the towers are on fire. And then, you know, we flew back not knowing anything and, and, you know, the rest is history, but, um, yeah, that was the time where, where I was like marketable, you know? And so that really drastically altered my career progression um, you know, it deviated a lot from what my expectations were <laughs> at that point, but you know, the ride has certainly been interesting. Yeah. I mean, everyone's ride's interesting and it, and it seems that, uh, most people have this idea of what they're going to do and, and how they're going to do it and things that their plan's going to work out. But a lot of times that's not really the case. Either something comes up, whether it's a, a different job opportunity, maybe someone in Alaska hits you up and you figure out that you just love flying bush planes and something like that. But, right. Or it's something more drastic where maybe uh, coronavirus, where we are right now, and there's more of a kind of a downturn and maybe either you take a step back and realize that you just want to do it for fun and you don't want to fly for the airlines, which is totally fine. Or sometimes yeah. you're just right place, right time, every single part of your life and you hit it right where you need to hit it and you just ride this perfect wave and have the perfect career. It's like they're uh, for yeah. every hundred people in aviation, every single one of them is pretty much going to have a different experience of what this career is like. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. That, that is that is absolutely factual. And And you know, the funny thing is, is I mean, until I started doing it, I didn't know what I do now was an option. I mean, it, it sounds crazy when when you when I, when I tell an, even another pilot that's been flying their entire life professionally, you know what we do. Um, you know, it's 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 crazy. And and you know, how did we get here? You know, chance, uh, taking chances, and and just seeing things through. And and that's you know that's ultimately how we. I'm sure we'll get more into that. But I mean, it's. It's, you know, it's always like my, my, my bit of advice that I give anybody who's breaking into the industry is, uh, and I wish somebody, I mean, I don't know if, I, I think it would have been helpful maybe in some ways, cause I, I think I was resistant to certain paths at certain times. Um, but, but I really, you know, what I say to people is just be open to new experiences. And, you know, even if you're like grinding away and like this miserable, and trust me, there are, I mean, as you probably know, there are some <laughs> miserable gigs in this business. Um, but, but you look back on them and, and they really develop who you are and the way you think and the choices you make. And I mean, I just say embrace it. I mean, even the worst of the aviation jobs I've ever had, um, were, they led, led, they led me to where I am. And, and I look back on them fondly, you know, like ready reserve in the crew room in the basement of the Denver international airport. <laughs> you know, I mean, I look back on those awful times where I could barely afford a hot dog and, um, and and I remember the good things. <laughs> yeah, you choose to re not remember the bad things. Like, oh, the engine failure over West Virginia. Let me just forget that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, for that's sure. Not for a sure. great memory of mine. But yeah, it's uh, there oh, are. Man. You're definitely right. It's uh, yeah. You kind of said it about myself. It's just whatever opportunity pops up. You know, don't be afraid to say yes to it. Everyone's journey in this career doesn't have to be the same point A to point C. It doesn't have to be 141 flight school to or ATP to a regional at a thousand hours and then end as a Delta. Uh, 
pilot when you're 65 years old. It's like, it's okay to, to go do some fun flying and get in a regional pipe, become a regional pilot when you're 30. Like there's no set route and it's okay. And if you never become an airline pilot, that's okay too. You can make good money, Absolutely. you can have a good life and you can do some really cool things, which I'm sure, like you said, we'll get into here. But I wanted to ask you one question about flying when you're flying on September 11th, when you first took off. So like you took off before everything happened or when you took off, was there already fire in the towers? Before, like the timing was like unbelievable. Um, you know, I can't, I want to, I want to say this. I never tell this story because it seems so like unreasonable. I had this strange feeling that morning and I, you know, it's so weird because as soon as I landed and I re- realized what was going on that day, um, I said, I really did have that thought as I was walking to the airplane, right? I mean, it was this like a little bit cool, you know, September morning. Um, and, and we're, you know, here in the Philadelphia area, I was flying out of Northeast Philadelphia, flying out of here. Yeah. I mean, usually it doesn't even start cooling down until later. I mean, we're just starting to get some cool days here now. It's usually kind of summery in early, in early September. And, you know, I, I just had this feeling we're walking out. It was just like kind of this kind of crisp morning. I think we took off you know, a little before 8 a.m. And I just said, you know, I just this odd feeling. It's something like I just, I couldn't explain it. There was an odd feeling. And we took off and I had forgotten about that feeling. And then when we landed, I I remembered. And yeah, like the way way it worked out is after we landed and made our way into the flight school and heard what was happening, the first tower crumbled shortly after. So that that puts the timing, like I, I would assume the first plane went in right around the time we were taking off. And so the sm- the smoke plume wasn't that big yet. It was kind of it looked like a it looked like a little flat like stratiform cloud kind of coming out of the top of the of one tower. That's crazy. Yeah. What's what I find interesting is everyone has experienced that day in different ways. Well, this episode should have come out 11 days ago. Recording this on the 22nd. This would have been the perfect 9/11 episode to release. <laughs> but Yeah. Everyone experienced that day just so different and it's just really interesting to hear all the individual stories, whether you're in New York at that time, whether you were the pilot flying in Alaska that had to be told to go land or when you're in remote Alaska and have no idea what's going on and you're just being told to land for national security reasons. Or in your case, you're in Philly Northeast, you go take off, you're doing some training and like you do some some turns around a point and before you know it, there's a big fire going on in New York City and you're like, uh, this is strange. Maybe we should go yeah. back. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, like, it's you just know, crazy. It's funny, on, on Twitter recently, actually, like in the last few months, um, the guy, the student that I was flying with that morning just like happened to like friend me. And like, I was like, Oh my God, like that's a name I'll never forget. And, um, you know, I, I, I started engaging with him via DM. I'm like, man, you remember, right. He's like, yeah, I remember you never forget, you know? Um, and, and of course, I mean, you know, a profound impact on all of us in one way or another who, who, going, um, going back to your kind of training and stuff, was there any roadblocks at all? Uh, a lot of people want to be pilots. A lot of people look up at the sky and they see planes. A lot of people want their mom to take them to go to the airport. But there's a, still a certain amount of people that never take that jump to become a pilot. Was there any fear of uh, finances? Was there any fear of just if you would like flying or if, like any hesitation to do this? Or were you just all in? You're going to make it happen no matter what. I was I was fortunate enough to have, have some good support by my family. Um, my parents and my grandparents. Um, combined resources. And, and I mean, I, you know, we're not, I came from a very kind of middle-class middle of the road family. Um, but you know, I mean, college was, I mean, I went to a state school and, and, you know, it just wasn't, 
we there was enough money to get that stuff to get the ratings and you know i trained in a cessna 150 um as cheap as possible i did you know i did the, you know the complex stuff as briefly as i could in like an arrow you know and and it really it, it's always been like i was economically wise i did things in like the, the the minimum allotted time essentially i worked my butt off of course you know studying and and taking it incredibly seriously um but i was lucky you know i, I had opportunities that that many people don't like in that my parents my parents paid for it you know and i'm obviously very grateful for that opportunity because i mean of course it's expensive i mean not probably way more expensive now um but then getting all my ratings probably cost 20 grand you know and that's just not something that everybody has access to. Yeah. So, and when you say it is, is it's it's expensive now. I'm guessing 20 grand back in the 90s is still a crap ton of money, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's probably like 50, right? I mean, I would guess it's probably around 50 now to get up, you know, up there. So, was the plan always to go to the airlines though? Like it was always uh I get I'm talking about pre-911 and pre kind of like the unfortunate timing, but like young you, young Steve getting ready to go fly, was the plan always airlines or be professional Always. Pilot? Okay. Always airlines. I mean, it was I was obsessed with you know, just the size and the look of airliners. I mean, it's just, it was cool. And, 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 you know, more than just, it's kind of funny because it translates to, to where I am in my career at this point, you know, more than the airplanes themselves, the travel was also always incredibly appealing to me. Um, so not only did I study airplanes, like I studied geography and, and I learned, I wanted to know about culture and I wanted, you know, I grew up in the Philadelphia area. I mean, we went to Florida a couple of times, we went to Atlanta a bunch um, I, I hit the West Coast once during my childhood, never left the country. I mean, we just, you know, in this area and th- in those times, I guess, I mean, people just didn't travel as much as, as they do now. I mean, like my kids have been everywhere, you know, it's, it's crazy. But I mean, like I just fantasize and, and like I would pitch my parents, hey, let's, let's go to India. You know, and they're like, yeah, no. You're like, I don't really want to go to India. I just want to fly on the plane to India. <laughs> right. And so I had this like curiosity about, you know, about the world. And, and I wanted to, um, I wanted to see it all. And, and I didn't first really get a chance to, to experience that until I was in my, in my mid twenties. Um, when I, you know, when I finally, when I first got jump seat privileges, one of the first things I did was hop a trip to Europe. And I went to Germany with a friend that happened to be from Germany that I knew from flight school. And that was the first time I ever left the country. And, and, you know, it's, 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 it's weird. Like, cause literally I'm out of the country every other day, you know, every week at least here. Um, it, I hit, you know, I mean, I've been to pretty much everywhere except for sanctioned countries that we're not allowed to go to. And even maybe even a couple of those. So, you know, it, it, the travel, the airplanes, the combination, the experience, commercial aviation was the way to get there. And that's, and I knew that's what I wanted. And, you know, and I, and I, I went for it. So 9-11 comes around, you are a CFI, you're flying. Um, obviously, we all know kind of what comes next. When was it, when did it get into your mind that, all right, maybe airlines aren't for me? So I, I, um, I was at the airlines for you know, most of my career. Yeah, I was at the airlines until 2014. And, and I was at a lot of airlines. 
science. So yeah, I mean, initially, yeah, do your research, Justin. Oh, <laughs> it's actually funny you say that. I like to to treat it more as like a cold call to where I call people yeah. and don't know anything about it. So I'm, this is the time I'm just that we. I know that's really funny though. All right, so let me um, rephrase that then. So nine eleven comes. Uh, yeah. What what comes next for you? Someone that is uh, getting ready to to venture off to the airlines, or maybe is at the airline. Like, kind of, what's the mindset? What's the game plan? How are you feeling in that moment? So I took advantage of every opportunity that I possibly could. And I ended up at Cape Air right after 9-11. And when I got into Cape Air, um, which is sort of an airline. Well, so let me, let me kind of go back. So while I was flight instructing, I also had a job flying a uh, single pilot 135. So I was flying a, uh, a caravan for a company called Martin Air. And I was based out in Harrisburg, PA. So I would flight instruct like two or three days a week. And the rest of the time, Five nights a week, I would drive to Harrisburg, PA, which was two hours from my house. I was living with my parents. Um, I would drive to Harrisburg, get in the caravan, load it up myself with freight, DHL freight, fly it down to BWI, which is a 40-minute flight, overnight in, uh, in uh, Glen Burnie, like right next to the airport at like a, you know, Hilton Garden Inn, every night, five nights a week for just about a year, and then fly back in the morning with a load of freight. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's essentially, that was my first non-CFI job, but I did it simultaneously with, with being a flight instructor. Um, so by the time, by the time 9-11 rolled around, I already had an ATP. I had about 2000 hours. I had about, uh, I would say probably about 500, four or 500 hours of, of single engine turboprop time in the caravan. Um, I had maybe a hundred hours, 150 hours of multi-time from instructing. It, it didn't come fast. Um, so that's when I got my, I got like my, my first like passenger flying job and that was with Cape Air. And the timing of it was that Cape Air was hiring, you know, they never didn't hire after 9-11. And in fact, they hired class after class after class of furloughed pilots. So all of my classmates and, and a lot of these guys are still really good friends. I'm still really good friends with, and I remain in contact with to this day, cause it was just a cool job. Um, they were all furloughies and they were, a lot of them were, some of them, they were all older than me. I mean, you know, I was like 24. Um, they, they were, you know, Delta furloughies, Amer uh, US Airways, TWA. Um, I mean, you know, the regionals that were furloughing, there were some Allegheny guys. And, you know, so I was surrounded by massive amounts of experience where I was kind of had come up the traditional path and I had some, you know, I had some turbine time in the, in the caravan, but I really didn't have, you know, I mean, the Cessna 402 certainly isn't a turbine, but it's kind of, it's, it's, it's equivalent to a caravan as, as far as workload and, and, and airmanship and so forth. So I came into that, <clears throat> excuse me, from the general aviation world. And I'm, and I'm like in class with all these super experienced guys that I just latched onto. And, you know, we, we partied together. I mean, we drank beer together. We flew together. We, you know, we hung out together in the winter in Cape Cod, in the summer in Cape Cod. And it was just an awesome experience. So I was fortunate to have that gig and it actually paid a lot more than the regionals as well. So yeah, like, I mean, I was making like, I mean, you know, it sounds like, it sounds like nothing at this point. I was making like 40 grand and coming out of being a CFI and flying the caravan for virtually nothing. I mean, I wasn't making half that all combined. Yeah, you're like, this so, is great. <laughs> I yeah, love so this. I, so I doubled my income. And, uh, and, and yeah, so, so I did that for about a year and, you know, I knew that the progression meant that I had to, I had to get into transport category aircraft as soon as I could. And I ended up going to, um, shuttle America after that. 
So I, I got a class date. I left Cape Air to go fly Saab 340s at Shuttle America. That's what they had at the time. Went to uh, ground school and, and uh, sim in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, flew the Saab 340 for like two or three months on the line. And then I got a call from Mesa Airlines. And I was like, you know, I, I was not happy at Shuttle America. I was flying between Pittsburgh. I was based in Trenton, New Jersey. I was flying from Trenton to like Bedford every day. I said, all right, you know, I'll go to Mesa. I mean, you know, I'll, inter- I'll go interview and see what happens. So I went and interviewed uh, at Mesa and I was offered a Dash 8 class. And anybody that had an ATP and a fair amount of, of experience in 135 or 121 were, were, going, were getting hired as street captains on the Dash 8. Because at the time, Mesa was, was bringing most of their new hires up through their ab initio program through uh, San Juan College down in, in New Mexico. And because of that, you know, most of them were, were going to the, to the RJ. Um, the ones that went to the Dash weren't able to upgrade because they didn't have ATPs and they didn't meet the insurance requirements. So there was this, nobody wanted to go from the right seat of the jet to the left seat of the Dash at the time. And I think there may have even been some silos in, in, in effect. So they were hiring and they had a lot of furloughees as well. So I had furloughees in that class as well. But I ended up going to Mesa as a Dash 8 captain off the street. So I went from single pilot 135 in the Cessna 402 flying between Nantucket and Hyannis um, to the left seat of the Dash 8 out of Denver. That's incredible. (laughs) Yeah. And it was incredibly difficult. I mean, it was a hard transition. But again, right place, right time. I'm in class with these guys that are, you know, one guy was a 747 FO at, uh, at, at, um, at, uh, American <laughs> or I'm sorry, at, uh, T- no, where did it, Dave? Oh, United rather. Yeah. So he was a 747 furloughee from United. My SIM partner, um, was, was he, I, maybe Aloha or something there, there, there were, I mean, everyone in my class that was a street captain were like these highly experienced guys in their thirties and forties. And I'm like, Again, the youngest guy there with with the the least experience, but I latched on and and learned and worked my butt off again and 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 managed to somehow make it through and qualify. And then I found myself, you know, as as a captain in one twenty one. I mean, that was my introduction to one twenty one outside of a couple months in the right seat of a sob was in the left seat of a dash. I can imagine the in-doc class. Everyone's like, all right, say your first name and where you came from. Everyone's like, oh, my name's Dave. I came, I flew a 747 on American. Oh, my name's Charlie. I flew a 727. You're like, ah, oh, my name's Steve. I flew a 402. And they're like, what? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What's a 402? Exactly. Is that some kind of like Russian airplanes? Like, no, the Cessna 402, you know, the the piston <laughs> twin. <laughs> you, right. Well, we were we were all grateful and happy to be there. And that didn't last long. But I mean, you know, in, in that, <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it was tough. It was tough. I think I think I was making as a captain 35 bucks an hour to start maybe like 30, 35 or 36 bucks an hour. And it was like a, you know, 70 hour guarantee. I mean, it was, I was making less than I was making it that, uh, that Cape Air. But that's, so, a, that's I mean, aviation though. It's like you, you have to make those moves to see the life that you want in the future. You know, it's like, yeah. Are you happy making 40 grand at Cape Air right now? Or like for the rest of your life, like you're not going to, I mean, maybe you can make a little bit more, but you're not going to make Delta money at Cape Air. Like eventually if that's what you want to do, you have to leave and take a pay cut, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and so like the ladder, the, the rungs of the ladder continue. So I, I spent, Two years there on the Dash, and the Dash is an awesome airplane. I mean, you know, it really, to this day, I love flying. I still fly it, and I still get PCs on it, and I still stay current on it, and I fly them a few times a year, you know. 
And I usually bring somebody who's a little more current because I, I just don't get the the reps on that airplane. But I did fly it for a long time and I flew it. Um, it was like my first real airplane that I really got comfortable in. So, you know, you, you always kind of have that. That and the MD-80 are like my two airplanes that I that I flew the most, you know, early on and just became ingrained. But we were flying these Dash 8s in and out of all the mountain airports. So like Aspen, Eagle, Gunnison, Telluride, um, Jackson Hole, Cody, Wyoming, Hayden. Um, you know, we, these, these were like not easy runs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we're flying into Aspen with 37 passengers and bags in a Dash 8 200, um, you know, flying a circling approach to, to I think it's 3-3 or something like that down below the mountaintops, you know, flying over the ski resort. And uh, I mean, it's it, it's almost like I was young enough to not know any better and just, all right, I guess it, I guess this is what I guess this is what airline pilots do. And yeah, I know, right? Yeah. I was like, my company doesn't let us lay do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the dash, you know, goes like, you know, 15 miles an hour. Or so it's it's not that tough, but um of course I'm kidding. But um, so yeah, so I, I did that for a while. Um, you know, it was it was stressful, um, to say the least. I was on reserve pretty much the entire time, but we got called all the time on reserve. And the reason I was on reserve is because I, you know, I had no seniority. I was a street captain. So when people upgraded, they were senior to me. And I just kept getting bumped back down and down and down. So I made my exit from there early 2005. It might have been late 04. And I went to Allegiant. And that's where I spent 10 years. So I got hired at Allegiant. Um, you know, and I'm sure most people are familiar with Allegiant now, but um, they had a Vegas base. And they had a brand new Sanford, Florida base, all MD-80s. Um, they had just phased out the DC-9s not too long before. And it was a dirty non-sked job with, you know, I think I got hired. I was number 90 or something over there. Yeah. And then, and then the company grew like gangbusters, essentially, from the moment I was hired. I think there was, I don't know, 10 classes within, the, you know, within six months of, of me... Uh, even getting hired over there. So I had instant seniority. I was a line holder. And then just before my first year anniversary, I upgraded to captain on the MD-80. Oh, wow. And this is yeah. like a OG Allegiant where they had flight emergencies like every four or five flights. <laughs> this was prior to OG Allegiant. Okay, the, gotcha. So this was when it was still not necessarily every flight was an emergency. <laughs> no, no. Because we didn't fly that. I mean, we didn't, we had a very limited route structure and we, we flew a lot, but I mean, the airplanes didn't get the reps that they were getting kind of after I had a few years in there. Now, when I was when I was when I was a captain and like, you know, kind of a line holding captain there, that's when all that drama started. And, you know, I did have a few. I didn't have anything super significant, like an engine failure. I have had two engine failures in my life, uh, once on a Cessna 402 at Cape Air and once on a 737 400. Um, but the the uh, the MD-80s, I, I think I, I had. I had smoke in the cabin once, like immediate turnaround landing. I mean, just little stuff. The thing about the 80 is, you know, it's everything's analog and cables. And I mean, so like the major stuff doesn't break. And, you know, you fly with, I mean, I had some world record like MEL stickers on. <laughs> I, think, I think there was one day that like, we couldn't even see any metal on the, on the, on the logbook because it was just covered with MEL stickers. <laughs> no way. Oh, yeah. That's insane. Fun times. And so I bid, I bid a lot of, um, we, we, Allegiant still did a lot of charters back then. So I would bid the charters cause they were fun. 
Um, we do March Madness. We fly around the college basketball teams. We do casino charters in and out of Laughlin. Um, that, that was, that was like a fire hose of experience. And that's, it actually really kind of translates a lot to what, what I do now because we were pretty unsupported, you know, I mean, we were out there in the field and as a captain and the, the charter birds were 87s, shorter birds. Um, you know, we'd be out there with an 87 and like, we'd be flying into non towered airports with like a 5,000 foot runway. You know, our wings are out over the, over the ends of the runway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And it's like, man, you, you know, do things with this MD-80 that aren't meant to be done with an MD-80. Always fun to be the person that does that, right? It's like, uh, <laughs> I don't necessarily. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, yeah. it was a great experience though. You know, I mean, looking back, it's, it, it is shaped, it is kind of shaped, um, how, how I react to things and how I deal with situations. Um, um, before you kind of people, you've, you've moved around to different companies. You have always kind of like taken the next job. A lot of people get very unhappy. So say like someone right now, it's a regional pilot. It's just gone through coronavirus, the whole pandemic, uh, and it has seen that the bad part of aviation and maybe they're thinking like, gosh, I just don't like where I am. Like, do I, do I stick this out? Do I move on? Do I take the next opportunity? Do I wait for Delta? What is your mindset? What do you recommend to them? Do you recommend to, to go for maybe a regional to an allegiant, to a spirit, to some other opportunity and then go, or is it, do you think it's best to kind of just stick it out where they're at? Honestly, man, I, I'm, I'm all about the variety and, and I'm not, you know, I'm not speaking on behalf of what an HR department would look at. Right. I mean, I'm speaking purely like the life. I mean, and, and this applies outside of aviation to me. I, you know, my theory is this, you know, the, the more variety of, of, of life that you have, the more places you live, the more experiences you have, your life seems longer. It's almost like your brain and we're getting philosophical here. Okay. But in my opinion, if you do the same thing every day, day in and day out, you almost like enter this like time compression where you lose years and you lose, you know, it's like, man, I was doing this like 10 years ago. It seems like just yesterday. Whereas like, I mean, I'm not going to like advocate, you know, spending like two months in a job and then going to another one. I mean, unless that, unless you, unless it's really a, a good reason to do that. But, um, Purely from, you know, at the end of the day, what really matters? I mean, what matters is, is living your life and having experiences and, and being able to look back on those experiences and tell stories and laugh and, 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 and have a long life. And if you, if you have a life that's filled with different experiences, my opinion is that it must feel longer, right? I mean, that's, that's at the end of the day, that's, that's what we're all going for. So, so I, yeah, it's deep, right? But, but it's true. And, and I think, I think for anybody who's out there who's, who's looking at an opportunity, look at every opportunity as, you know, not what's going to bring you to the rest of your life. Just think about it. What's going to bring you happiness for the time being? And maybe that's not a great strategy. I'm not a guy that's like would have been okay at an airline for, for 30 years. I mean, I would have lost my mind. I mean, 10 years was more than enough and at Allegiant and, and, you know, maybe if I was at Delta or UPS or FedEx or and I, maybe I would have been a little happier, but I don't know. I've been in a lot of those jump seats and there's, you know, not everybody's super happy. So uh, again, it's life is what you make of it. So I, I would, I would recommend taking advantage of every, any experience. You know, let me, let me bring up a guy, a, a friend of mine who I'm sure will not mind me bringing him up. His name is Rye Thompson. He's, he's a good dude. And he flies for me sometimes. He's actually a United pilot, but he's on leave and he takes unpaid leave, you know, for periods of time, but he doesn't take unpaid leave to like make money. 
he takes unpaid leave to do, do cool stuff. And he went and he flew UN, a UN contract for me um, in Africa for six months. And he was flying out of Mogadishu. And I mean, you know, he couldn't pay me enough to do that. But he did that. Right now, he's on leave. And he's flying single-engine float planes in Alaska. I mean, he's got a beard. And, and you know, he was on the 7-4 at United. He was on the 7-5. He's got 7-6, you know, 7-3. I think he was most recently on the bus. I mean, this guy's only a couple years older than me. And he's, you know, he lives it. He lives that adventure, you know, lifestyle. And he, he I, I'm telling you, man, he's the happiest guy I know. I mean, he's also not married. <laughs> <laughs> that might have something to do with it. But Let's take uh, that into consideration. <laughs> but uh, no, he's, he, you know, he's brilliant. He's got this brilliant life. And, um, and, and of course, he, whenever he can, he flies for me. Um, so yeah, you know, take the leap. See where it leads. I mean, you're not going to get led anywhere that's going to pull you backwards. I mean, you, you kind of know when you're looking at an opportunity like that. Yeah. So let's take a break from this episode and hear from our sponsor, RAA. When it comes to financial planning, you might be surprised by just how many pilots are missing out on many of the benefits offered to them by the airlines. And having the resource to make the right benefit choices during open enrollment can have a significant impact on both your current financial situation and your future retirement. And that's why RAA provides a free open enrollment resource center online and available for you to explore videos, articles, and interactive tools you need to navigate through this crucial period. Visit RAA's Open Enrollment Resource Center today at raa.com backslash pilot to pilot. That's pilot, T-O, pilot. There's a lot to consider and only a small window to get it right. Now let's go back to today's episode. What, um, so what was the mindset? Like why, you obviously could see the writing on the wall. You've seen Allegiant grow. Uh, if you're in the first hundred of seniority, even at uh, an airline at Allegiant, you're going to have a pretty good life. Probably be able to fly whatever you want, make some really, really good money and do whatever you want. Why leave? Well, um, because I didn't leave empty-handed. I, I started you know, I started a business ferrying airplanes. When I actually just started out like kind of freelancing as a contractor for crew leasing companies, um, you know, just on days off. And the, one of the benefits of, of my early entry into Allegiant and one of the downfalls, I guess, I mean, I guess if I, I guess, you know, I guess if, if, if the airline, the airlines weren't hiring for the first five or six years that I was there. So I think if they were, I might have gone to a Delta or a United and then maybe, you know, just settled in until I lost my mind and then, you know, just <laughs> did something completely different. But at the t- I mean, I was considering like law school. I mean, I was considering all kinds of stuff, you know, but but flying on the side, like picking up these ferry trips when I could, I was super senior. So I had the schedule to do it. I was able to drop trips and get them picked up and then go do that. Of course, I didn't tell the airline. I mean, you know, they would have fired me on the spot, but. <laughs> but, but, you know, I was, I was actually doing the ferry work almost from the beginning at Allegiant. And, uh, I met a guy who got me into it and I started contracting and one thing led to another. I mean, it's kind of a long story and I've told it a few times, um, publicly, but, um, we, I was contracting for a guy that was tragically killed. Um, he had a, he had a ferry company and his name was Pete Adler. Um, really nice guy, but he, he basically ran the ferry company and he was hiring, myself and, and another colleague, um, basically to run his business and fly all the trips as much as we could. And I don't, you're maybe too young, but th- there was a, there was a Sukhoi Superjet crash. I think it was in 2012, maybe 2011, uh, in Indonesia. And he was 
on that airplane in the back um, on a demonstration flight. And that airplane crashed into Mount Salak in Indonesia and he was killed. And when, when he died, um, you know, he had a lot of customers and they were kind of left scrambling. There was a lot of work in progress that needed to be done. And so me and a colleague um, kind of rallied and, and we, st- we, we built a business that kind of took over all of his work. And then one thing led to another. And over the course of, of about five or I guess, four or five years, we got to the point where I was... And I was making an okay living at Allegiant, but I was able to make more money. I was making more money, significantly more money through my job on the side and through the business. And you know, I knew that, I want, I knew that this was going to be my path I would say from about 2013 or so, 2012, 2013, I knew that my path was going to be doing this um, as long as I could make it pay the bills. And I, and, and I had a conversation with my wife who, was, you know, who I very rarely saw because I was line flying. I was commuting to St. Pete. You know, I went to the bus at Allegiant. You know, eventually, I was kind of in the initial cadre on the Airbus. Um, and I, I, I went, you know, I was commuting to Tampa, flying a line, coming back home saying hello, popping in and then go flying a ferry trip. You'll, you know, went and you fly a ferry trip to like, you know, Malaysia or, you know, you know, South Africa or something. And then I come home and I go right back to Allegiant. So I was never home. I was missing my kids growing up. And, um, you know, I, I kind of said, look, here's the goal. House paid off, no debt, enough money in the bank to survive a year. And then I'm going to walk. And that's exactly what I did. I waited till all those milestones were met. And as soon as they were, I said, all right, it's time. And I, and I lived on a sailboat down in Florida. I had a, uh, my crash pad was a sailboat in the Clear Harbor or Clear, Clearwater Harbor Marina. And I, I put my boat on the market, sold it in a week. I had a bunch of uniforms hanging up on the boat. I stuffed them in the trash <laughs> on, the, on, the side of, uh, on the side of the dock. I went in and turned my badge in the office and I bought a one-way ticket home. And that was it. That was my airline career's end right there. No hesitation whatsoever. No fear. No anything. Just like it's done. No. I don't need any. Wow. I, I was ready. I, you know, I had enough work on the schedule to know that I would make it through the first year. I had enough money in the bank to make it through another year. And, and it was sink or swim. And, and it was like, I was down for it, man. I mean, you know, I was like, I was ready to do it. So, so why... F- Ferry planes. Why? Like, obviously, an opportunity comes up, but like, takes a special person. I don't want to say crazy, but ferry ferry flying is not for everyone, especially over the ocean, especially like long range ferry flying. Like, that's uh, that's intense. Yeah. So, first of all, I mean, we don't ferry small small airplanes. The smallest airplane I, I ferry is a Dash Eight, and I'm typed on the Dash Eight. I happen to have a Citation type. That's a whole other story. We we I owned a Citation with with two partners for a period of time, but. Besides that, I've got DC-9, 737, 757, 767, which is the same, 777, A320, A330, and A340. So I, I maintain 10 type ratings, although I haven't, I'm not current on the, on the MD-80 DC-9 at the moment, but uh, I am current on everything else. So I do a lot of sim. Um, why ferry flying? Well, man, I mean, number one, I run my own business. I, you know, I, I, I have a beard. <laughs> I wear plain clothes. Um, it's, it's a constant series of puzzles and challenges to overcome. Every deal is different. Every plane is different. Every customer is different. Um, it is like ADD professionalized. (laughs) I mean, there's no other way to, to really, and and it's not just, I mean, you, you might think that it's just flying the airplanes from point A to point B. We do a lot of test operational test as well. 
but it's not. I mean, it's planning and logistics. I, I, I sit in my home office and I manage incoming work. I manage work in progress. Um, I manage project managers who, who we've hired that are contract project managers who are also pilots with similar credentials to us, uh, almost exclusively ex-airline, although one of my project managers is a 22-year uh, Air Force F-16 pilot. Um, almost everybody else is from a similar background, and they just said, screw it, I don't like wearing a uniform, and this is what I'm going to do. And so it's all-encompassing. I never turn it off. I'm always working. When I'm on vacation, you know, I try to put my phone down, but I, I pick it up. When I'm playing golf, I try to put my phone down, but I pick it up. And, you know, it's it's like it's like this huge, massive like lifestyle. I mean, I have to live it, right? I have to live it 24-7. For better or for worse. And that works for me. <laughs> what um so like so let's say how quick does a does a job happen? So say like someone calls you right now to ferry whatever airplane out of whatever airport, like how fast does this all happen? Some of the most complex trips um, will need about four or five days lead time for permits, sometimes even a little more. Um, usually seven days is pretty much the minim- the maximum we need for something that, that, you know, a lot of times we get a call and it's ASAP, right? And so like my default answer is about six or seven days to get everything done. I mean, we have to quote it. We have to get vendor quotes. I mean, of course we have a database uh, you know, from having done this for so long. I mean, we have preferred vendors and we have fuel account. I mean, we have millions of dollars in fuel credits with multiple fuel vendors. Cause I mean, we, we provide everything. We have dispatchers, you know, we have nav pubs, we have training manuals, we have manual, we have an SMS system. I mean, we have, we have everything, MELs, MMELs. Um, we have relationships with the regulators, we have validations. I mean, there's a lot involved, but like, I mean, you know, there's sometimes we'll get a simple domestic trip that'll pop up and then we'll do it in a day or two. But for the most part, you know, between permits and I mean, don't even mention, I mean, with COVID, everything is obviously even more complicated, but um, to, to put all the logistics together, you know, to get the contracts together, to get paid and to, to, to really get a game plan together, a couple of days. And, but, but normally it doesn't work that way. Normally our customers let us know that we have, you know, an operation like on this on the horizon. And usually it's like a month out or a month and a half out. And then it slides a day or a week. And then it slides two days and it slides a day. And we ultimately complete it within about two weeks of the time they originally forecast. And it's not because of us. It's because, I mean, there's so many moving parts in 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 this. It's it's not simply the the movement of the aircraft. You know, there's execution of leasing co- lease contracts. You know, there's delivery conditions, there's boroscopes that have to be done. There's like very strict time limits on the SFPs. Um, you know, there's wording on insurance documents. There's, I mean, there's, there's things that like you couldn't even, like I would, I don't even know how to explain sometimes that come up. Validations, you know, getting our manuals approved by a foreign CAA. So all this stuff comes together and, and we kind of piece it together as the customer makes the documents available to us. And then I have, you know, we subdivide each, each, each project into a, a series of tasks. And we have, you know, team members that, that, are, that are responsible for certain tasks. And, you know, it's, it's orchestrated from, from an er, as early as possible. And by the time it's fly day, almost everything's done. So the easiest part of my job is really showing up and flying an airplane. How often do you yourself fly? How often do you actually go pick up a plane? I'm guessing you do. You handle a lot of administration stuff on top of everything. So how often do you actually get to go fly, or do you make it a point to make sure you go fly? I make it a point. I mean, and I of course I cherry pick the ones I want to do. 
Right. Like, so, I mean, if there's, if, if there's a 737, you know, 300, you know, going 150 nautical miles, uh, you know, I, I'll send a contractor. And if there's an A340 going from Sanford to Amman, I'll, I'll jump on that. And, and also like with the, the more oddball types like the A340 and, and so forth, I, I'll try to do those because I just don't get enough reps in those airplanes. So, you know, the only reps I get are in the sim sometimes. I mean, it'll, sometimes it'll be a year between the time. That, I mean, I've actually gone you know, a sim period, a 12 month period without seeing the airplane and you just hop in it and go. But the good thing about airplanes nowadays, as I'm sure you're well aware, is an Airbus is an Airbus and a Boeing is a Boeing. So, you know, I mean, going from a 7.6 to a 777 is not not much of a of, of an adaptation. Just like an A330 and an A340 and an A320, they're essentially the same airplane. And, and, and they, of course, they feel a little different on the stick. And there's some there's some differences in there, um, and of course, I I spend a day or two usually kind of reviewing the manuals before I go out and go fly an A340 if I haven't flown one in a while, and I'll try to grab a, a right seater or you know a, a right seater is the wrong word because we alternate seats. I'll grab a a guy to fly with um, that that's a little more current in the airplane whenever possible. <laughs> Smart, you that's know, a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> but but you know, it, it just. Flying a lot of different airplanes, I mean, like once you're flying more than two at a time, it's no, it's no longer like knowing two airplanes. It's knowing how to fly multiple types. I, you know, you have a way, there's a way of that we compartmentalize um, the, the differences and we review those differences and then everything else is the same. I mean, you know, picking up a clearance and operating an HF and you know, making position reports. I mean, in flight, it's all the same stuff. I mean... The flight control panel might look different in a Boeing and an Airbus, but you're doing the same thing. The buttons are just in different places, right? So, I mean, with 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 few exceptions. I mean, of course, you know, you get, if I get called out in an MD80 and I've got to go get current in that, that's a bit of a struggle. But everything else is pretty much the same, the same old, same old. So, how many? So, let's say like someone calls you right now for how many planes? I guess are you current in? I know you kind of mentioned this before, but what would you say yeah. right now? I'm current in eight. So right do you now. set up? Do you make sure you're current every single year? Do you go do eight different check rides every single year? So the way it works under Part 91, and this is a question I get a lot, right? Um, we don't necessarily have to have a 12-month PC in every type. Although I get 12-month PCs on, on every every year, I get a PC in an A320 and a 737, just because not all countries honor the US Part 91 system, which is um, you just need a P so you need a PC on type every 24 months, so every two years, but you have to have a PC on a transport category jet every 12 months. So the way that we would normally do it is like, you know, in January, we'll do A320 and 737 PCs in the same week. We'll go down there for for seven days, or not even like four or five days, and we'll do two PCs. We get a warm-up, we get a ground school to warm up in a sim, and you know, we'll just back to back them. And those two airplanes I fly all the time. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's really easy to just go into a 737 and an A320 and, and bang out a PC and do well and not have any issues. Um, then, you know, towards like usually the lull right before, like the end of summer, like August, we'll go in and we'll do one other. So it'll be like, you know, and, you know it'll be like the 7.5. And then the next year, you know, it'll be a 7.6. Um, and is, and and we'll rotate in, and every now and then we get to throw in an extra triple seven to keep that current. But you know, right now I'm about to lose two year on my seven five seven six, so I'm going to need to go back and do a 
7576 here in the next month or two. Um, 777, I'm still good from last year. I'm going to have to do that again next year. And then in January, I'll do A320 and 737. So it's basically a two-year rotation for each type and a one-year rotation, which is kind of irrelevant on any type, right? But we, we end up dragging out currency for two years on the planes that we fly less often, like the Dash 8, right? Like I'll do a Dash 8 PC every two years just because, I mean, I just don't fly enough of them to make, have it make sense to do right. one every year. What, um, let me guess, what was I going to ask? Well, oh, you asked how I'm... often I fly and I never answered. So oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I try to fly once a month. I usually fly twice a month. Um, and when we're busy, I'll fly, you know, three or four trips a month. Nice. I was going to ask how accurate are fairy, I guess like the crazy discovery channel TV shows about like fairy pilots and all the smaller planes. Is there any accuracy to, to what they do? Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Like the, I can't remember the exact name of the TV show, but they're like breaking hangers to go steal airplanes or oh, quote unquote. Yeah, so, so, I mean, first of all, yeah, like those guys are definitely cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, it's different than what we do. So it's hard. I, I don't really know. Cause I mean, I've never repossessed a, a biz jet. So I, I don't want to go out and say, you know, they inject drama into it for TV purposes. Um, but I would imagine they probably do because oh, I mean, sure. what yeah. we do isn't super entertaining all the time. Although I try to make it entertaining with, with, with our, uh, our YouTube series. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it, I don't, I don't know how, I don't know. I don't know the answer when we're repossessing airplanes. And that is a big part of what we do. It's, it's not like we break it into a, to a hangar because, you know, you have to understand that when we're repossessing an airplane from an airline, it, there have been court proceedings for months prior and, and like legals involved. By the time we get there, you know, they just hand us the keys, you know, and that's it. So it's, it's pretty non-dramatic in that sense. Not to, not to say that there's not drama in the job. I mean, there is, we are, you know, I mean, we're getting, you know, we're getting, we're getting people, you know, officials in places that are looking for bribes all the time. And, you know, I mean, we, we always are stumbling upon some situation that's a, monumental hurdle to overcome and and we do our best to overcome them. What's been the most terrifying experience in this whole thing, whether it's the scariest flight you've had or just like the all around, just like, holy crap, this has been crazy. I talked about it before a little bit on a podcast once, but um, we had a, we had a DC 930 once Bob and I were flying it from, uh, from the U S from Arizona to the democratic Republic of Congo. And this, this goes back to about, I think about 2010, 2011, and we had a mechanical uplatch and one of the main landing gears break and the landing gear fell into the slipstream over the Western Sahara. And so because of all that extra drag, we had to descend down to about, I mean, it took us down to about 20,000 feet before we were able to maintain altitude at a reasonable speed. And of course, that 20,000 feet, a DC-9 with a pair of JT-8s is, is sucking fuel. And, you know, they don't hold that much fuel to begin with. And we were on our way from... Uh, we we're going from Casablanca to, to Dakar, Senegal. So, I mean, it was one of those situations where like we land, I think we landed with 300, 300 pounds of fuel, which is like, yeah, I mean, it's like, not only is it not enough for a go around, it's not enough to even know whether the fuel gauges are accurately telling you how much fuel you have. Right. And so that was intensely scary, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and I was, a little younger then, and you know, a little, a little more willing to take those kind of risks. And I mean, of course, that was that was 
which incredibly scary. And then of course we got down in Senegal and there was not, I mean, there was another whole story. We had to find maintenance and get it repaired enough to get down to the DRC. Um, so that one stands out as, as quite, quite frightening. What'd you learn um, from that? Obviously everyone learns from all, not necessarily mistakes, but pushing the limits you learn from that and kind of like, Oh, I'm never doing that again. Or are you kind of like, Oh, that's cool. Let's do that again next time. I mean, I think uh, certainly not the latter. I mean, the the thing is, I mean, I've looked at that situation so many times and there's really nothing we could have done differently. Um, there, there were no lighted air. It was nighttime. There were no lighted airports along the way. I mean, there's nowhere we could have gone. So, you know, the one thing that I learned for sure, and this is like a technical thing, is that, you know, wh- we had two schools of thought in the cockpit that day. One, you know, Bob was like, and he was, he was the one who ended up being correct. Bob was like, let's stay as high as we can for as long as we can and then glide down. And I was like, well, maybe we want to get the power back early and just fly like a long arc, slow descent, you know, with the engines burning less fuel. And Bob's like, no, 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 that doesn't, seem, that doesn't sound right. And, and he was right. And if we had done that, we might have we might have fallen a little short. So we stayed, you know. I, I learned to listen to him, <laughs> among other things. But I but I learned that you know staying up at altitude as long as you can is generally the best idea, um, because you know an idle descent. I mean, at the end of the day, altitude is your friend, right? You know, you can't do anything, you can't make any decisions if you don't have time to make them. And so altitude is always buying you, buying you time. Yeah, I'm glad you guys made a decision because 300 pounds is not a lot. That's a difference. Yeah. If you were a little it's bit lower, nothing. there's yeah, there's not much you can do, especially in a bigger plane like that. That's not getting you anywhere. Yeah, and maybe you know, maybe we had 150, and maybe we had 600. Who knows? When you get down to those levels, you know, this airplane had been sitting. There might have been sludge in the bottom of the tanks. I mean, who knows? I mean, when I think about it in retrospect, I mean, you know, kiss the ground. I, yeah, I mean, I, it wasn't my time. How long did you wait to tell your wife about that story? We weren't married yet. So oh. <laughs> like we yeah, like we weren't even together at that point. So like I don't know that she's ever heard that story. <laughs> <laughs> Tell her not to listen to the podcast. Everything's great. I know my mom's never heard that story. Yeah. My mom would be my wife is more along the lines of that, eh, you know. Yeah, I he's trust an idiot. He my figured, mom, yeah. on the other hand, she she still calls me twenty times a day when I'm on ferries. That's funny. It's like mom, I'm flying right now. I can't do it. Can't talk. Yeah. Exactly. That's funny. Where are you? Where are you going? Oh and she's starting to know now. She's like is that an NG seven thirty seven or is that an old seven thirty seven? What's your favorite airplane to fly? Um, you know, the seven six is the is the best flying airplane. I think, really, all things considered, it's like a balanced, you know, comfortable, predictable, forgiving airplane. Um, but I I like the triple seven. I mean, the triple seven is just big and it's modern and it does everything for you, and you don't even have to. I mean, it's basically you know, V one cut is like autopilot on. <laughs> yeah, you know, nice. so, so the triple, the triple is definitely, I mean, it's kind of the, you know, the most fun to fly, I guess the seven, six is just, it's just no surprises, man. It's like the Cessna 172 of jets. Right. I, I wouldn't know, but I'll take your word for that one for sure. What, what do you, what do you fly? <laughs> I fly a citation latitude right now. Oh, so okay. Cool, jet cool. world. Yeah. I don't repossess them though, but, uh, that's why uh, I fly for a fractional company. Gotcha. Gotcha. I had a, uh, you know, we owned a, uh, a citation 550, uh, a citation two, like circa 19, I think it was a 1981 maybe. Um, never again. I won't do that again. I mean, those things, you have to have a lot more money than the uh, amount of money that it takes to purchase one, especially, oh, for sure. the, older, the, old, especially the older ships. You Absolutely, know? man. Absolutely. Um, I was going to ask kind of how long have you been doing this, the actual fairing planes? 
Um, I started doing this in 2006. So, I mean, you know, a while. Um, but like as a business owner, that really started in 2012. You're getting up to that 10 year point. Are you getting the itch to do something else or does the, no. the constant variety in this and that you never know really what's going to happen kind of settle that? So every day is something new and that's what's so great about this. But um, that said, I'm also involved in other things as well. I mean, you know, one of them being making videos for speed tape films, right? And uh, my little my little home production company on YouTube, shameless plug. If you want to see what we're doing, you check that out. Um, and, and then the other, you know, the other thing is there's, I am privy to a lot of opportunities. So a couple of years ago, we got involved, we raised some money to to buy some some 767s, which we purchased from Air New Zealand. So I was part of, you know, I, I took every cent that I had in the bank, which was like a very small part of the purchase. We bought three 767s. I mean, we went and found finance, you know, funding to do it through private equity. And we bought them and we converted them and we sold them to ATSG, Amazon Prime. And those are all currently flying for ATSG. So I made a little money on that. Um, we've brokered some deals on some aircraft. I don't really love that world. It's, I'm not like a front facing sales guy. I'm more of an ops, an ops guy. Um, but that said, I'm also involved in some other projects. I mean, you know, I'm involved in an AOC, which I, I can't talk too much about yet, but it'll be mainstream soon. Uh, a foreign AOC. Uh, I've got a board level position there. Um, I, I've been involved in all kinds of, of stuff, always aviation related, of course. Um, so you're always busy. You're always going. Like you uh, said, man, I'm phone's a, always yeah, ringing. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, certainly I, I, I'm a workaholic and it may lead to my early death. I hope not, but um, I'm always working for sure. There's a lot of pilots out there that have an entrepreneurial spirit. And what kind of recommendation would you give to them right now? Obviously, we talked about kind of, you know, take the next job. Uh, don't always kind of just get stuck in a situation, but keep looking for stuff. But like, you have a yeah. lot of time as a pilot to do a lot of cool stuff. What would you like recommend for someone to get involved in uh, doing more than just being a pilot? I mean, everybody's different, right? And some people kind of get, you know, I mean, a lot of people like, when I look back on 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 the pilot life, there are things that I miss about like the line pilot lifestyle, and that is the ability to to turn it off. And and I missed out on my kids growing up, you know, and I regret that. And I have a, I, I I mean not completely. I mean my kids are still relative. My youngest is twelve, um, but the early years with him, I wasn't around a lot. And my older kids were teenagers. I missed a lot of like key stuff. So I mean, it depends what your personality is like. I mean, if you're a family person. I would say take, you know, what I would do differently is take that time at the airlines and being able to walk away from it and, 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 you know, experience the home life and, and kind of do that. Like that's where I kind of would have done things a little bit differently. But if you're not in that predicament, you know, I mean, I would just say, go for it, man. I mean, like any, any, anything, anything that you're doing is, is going to be different and, and is going to contribute to things in your life that probably we'll look back on as positive, even if they're not positive in the moment. So, I mean, there's a million things you can do entrepreneurial outside of aviation. I have a friend that I have a friend that owns ATMs and he's a pilot, you know? <laughs> hey man, you got to make your money somehow, right? Someone has to own an ATM. Yeah. Another buddy of mine was a, uh, a cargo hauler for Atlas and he started a job hauling junk like Sanford and son. Oh, and, wow. and he's, he's making money doing that. So that's awesome. Well, being a pilot, you have a very unique opportunity to use some off time to, to do other stuff and you can do a lot with it. Absolutely. 
Absolutely, man. It's a unique field in that respect, for sure. Or, or start a podcast. Just start you know? a podcast or do 189 episodes of a podcast. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. That's impressive. I know, man. A lot. But uh, so talk a little bit about like the future for you. Like what's coming next? What uh, I know you maybe you can't like speak to certain specifics, but um, talk a little bit about like your, your new goals, uh, what you're looking forward to in the future. Um, I... I don't really, I want to slow down with the new stuff. Like I want to keep focusing on what I do and I want to improve. I'm thinking about kind of diversifying the business into kind of like regional operations. Like I feel like I'm doing too much right now. So, I, you know, what I, I still want to keep doing, you know, charting the, the, the course that, that I set out on and doing the same stuff. But I want, you know, to empower others around me to to take on more of a responsibility, um, to focus on my little regional area, um, not geographically, of course, because you know, because it, just because a, a, a trip originates in the United States, I still go everywhere in the world, or originates somewhere else and comes back to the United States. But you know, I mean, I think I want to be less of a maniac. <laughs> I want to play more golf. I want to, you know, I'm 44. I mean, I, I'm I'm starting to not be able to wake up in the morning and feel great every day. Like I need to be more active. I, I, I'm going to start, I think I'm going to start paying more attention to myself um, while trying to ensure the business stays successful. I mean, I think that's really, and it's kind of a boring answer, but. I mean, that's um, hard to do though. That's much easier said than done. It's uh, it's like, it's funny because when you're, I mean, I'm still 31, so I don't know if I hit that rage or maybe I have, but you kind of just like do whatever it takes to build something. And then understanding the fact that either, one, it's too much, or two, it's time for you to reevaluate kind of uh, what's important to you and how you want to live your life. And it's, do you take a step back? Do you trust more people with responsibility? Like, how do you go about that? That can be more stressful than the the, the whole building the company, you know? Totally. And, and I don't think it's as much stepping back as it is, is, is a sidestepping into kind of like a different... I mean, I, I will never stop flying until I'm forced to, because I love it. I mean, I still love it. I mean, I especially love it now that I, you know, that I'm not at the airlines. And so, and I also have a, you know, I own an Aerostar. So I fly general aviation and stuff, which is, which is fun. I do like, you know, pilots and paws, dog flights, and I you know, fly the Aerostar around and, you know, that's always, that's always a, a maintenance pig. So I'm always trying to figure out what I'm going to do next with that thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I, I think more or less, I want to coast with the business, still continue to grow it and seek opportunities. But on the other hand, you know, just I, I need less stress in my life. I, I, I think, you know, I said it before, I feel like kind of at the pace that I've maintained for the last 10 to 15 years, I'm headed for an early grave if I don't, if I don't start taking care of myself physically, you know, and, and I love golf, right? So for me, it's all about playing more golf. I just got back from Chambers Bay yesterday. I, this morning, I landed from Seattle on a red eye. I went, to, I went out to Seattle to play Chambers and it was, it was awesome. And I need to do more stuff like that, you know? I challenge you to do it. Live your life. Yes, sir. Well, cool. I have some rapid fire questions for you and then we can wrap it up real quick. So these are just very uh, rapid fire, quick questions. And whenever you're ready. Yep. I'm All ready. Right. Uh, what's your favorite airplane ever made? Oh, dude. Ah, that's hard. <laughs> uh, the Aerostar. I bought one. Favorite corporate plane ever made? Corporate jet. Like uh, um, Gulfstream, whatever those. Oh, Fa Falcon. Falcon 7X. Got to ride one. Favorite airliner. Uh, triple seven. Ugliest airplane you've ever seen in your life. Shorts 330. Nice. I say the Piaggio and people get mad at me for that one, but I just do not like the way the Piaggio looks. I'm not a canard guy. It, it is a weird looking plane. Yeah. I give you that. Yeah. What's something you wish you knew before you became a pilot? 
Um, oh God, man. Ah, something I wish I knew. Um, that you know, like we talked about in the beginning, that it doesn't matter the path you choose, you'll end up in the right one. I like it. Who in the industry would you like to meet most? So it could be someone that's died in the past, or it could be someone that you know of right now you never had the chance to meet. Um, I would say Jimmy. I would say Doolittle. Jimmy Doolittle, man. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. What's your overall favorite thing about aviation? If you could just choose one thing about it, what's your favorite? Uh, the, the, the ability to get anywhere in the world rapidly. Travel is, is key. That's what it is. Favorite overall thing. Oh, yeah, I just said that, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> My bad. Uh, what's the <laughs> hardest approach you've ever flown? Um, yeah, definitely the uh, VOR. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Is it a loc? It's the, it's the uh, straight in approach to Aspen with a circle to land northbound. So I think, it's, I think it was like a VOR alpha circle to land 3-3. Of all the crazy places you've been in the world, and it's still Aspen, that's the craziest place to land. I love it. Um, yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite yeah. approach you've ever flown? Uh, Majuro, the visual into Majuro, hands down. Yeah, that's PKMJ, you know, in Marshall Islands. Check it out on Flight Simulator 2021 if you haven't, or 2020 if you, if you haven't already. <laughs> Shameless plug. What yeah. is uh, for Flight Sim? <laughs> What's your favorite yeah, airport you've ever landed it. at? Um, that would have to also be Majuro. Okay. That place is just like nothing else in the world. Least favorite airport you'd get to land at. Like one, maybe you take this flight and you're like, man, I don't want to do this. Um, there is, uh, yeah, the, um, at, uh, not, it's not Brooksville. Uh, it's in, it's in Northern Florida. I don't, oh, Crestview, Crestview, Florida. We take heavies into there. It's a tiny runway and it is stressful as all hell. Also, maybe there's a second one, three, three, right in Boston in a Cessna 402. Also a bit of a challenge. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's a nice short one, huh? Yeah. Oh yeah. Especially with a split flap on the 402, man, yeah. coming in there hot. What is your favorite airport food? Say you're, you're connecting to go pick up a big heavy somewhere. You have 30 minutes in a connecting flight and you're getting some fast food. What are you getting? Uh, the clam chowder, Bellingham, Washington, back from my Allegiant days. What would you rather fly over? Mountains, beaches, or cities? Um, beaches. I mean, anything with beaches is, the best, is better in my opinion. I'm an ocean guy. Airbus or Boeing? Airbus. Favorite airline livery? Uh, current or old? Both. Um, old, I would have to say Gulf Air. Um, their old L-1011 and their, their rainbow tail, unbelievably awesome. Um, and I, I, uh, I really like the, uh, I really also like the, it's not that old, but the old, the old Northwest Airlines silver just before Delta Air paint job. That was pretty badass. Long trips or short trips? So like one trip in whatever airplane, as long as it can fly or as many short legs as possible in a day? Long, baby. <laughs> long. Hardest check ride you've ever had? Uh, Dash eight check ride that, that at Mesa Airlines coming from the Cessna four hundred two to uh, PIC and a Dash eight was by far the hardest. Biggest regret in your career, if you have one? Um, probably that 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 gig that I took flying the 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 three the um, Saab three forty that was just uh, horrible from beginning to end. Biggest win of your career? Um. I'd have to say taking the jump from the airlines and, and doing this full time. CRJ or ERJ? Let's say you're commuting, you're not flying. Would you rather be oh, a CRJ a 200 question? or an ERJ 145? Is that even a question? It's, got, <laughs> it's the CRJ. The ERJ 145 is not even an airplane. <laughs> but then when you get to the 170, you take that over any CRJ, right? Of course, yeah. of course. That's one of my favorite planes uh, to commute in and to fly in. Yeah, it's not bad. I was just yeah. on one this morning, actually. Piper or Cessna for your own little small planes? 
Um, I'd go, I'd go Cessna. If your kids wanted to learn how to fly, would you want them to, uh, outside of training them yourselves, would you recommend them going to a 141 training or 61 training? I would say 61 training and it would certainly not be me myself. I could not, I would, they would never solo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would be unfair to them. That's funny. Uh, let's see here. You've flown a lot of airlines. What's your overall favorite airline? If you could go anywhere in the world, what airline are you choosing? Uh, so Emirates first class is the best premium product in the world. Qatar, uh, business class is the best business class in the world. Hands down. No question. All right. There we go. You heard it here first. And then, uh, last but not least, those are all the rapid fire questions. I always ask this, you have, uh, just someone's listening right now. They really love what you're saying. They're getting in aviation. They want to have a successful career. Maybe they see you going down the route that you're going to. What's well, kind of like your three either life mottos or just three tips that you give to someone to, to that could set themselves up for a good career in aviation, whether it's airline pilot or doing multiple other things like you have done. So first and foremost, like I said early in the pod, um, you know, take that chance, make that jump, take that leap, because no matter what you do, you're going to look back at it and it's going to you're going to be able to derive something positive from it. So, you know, I mean, the industry is going to throw you know, curveballs, you're going to get served up a big pile of poop, um, eat it, you know, because, because ultimately it will shape who you are down the road. So that's, that's one. Um, two is always fall back on your training. I mean, you know, I've, I've been in situations where I've frozen up, um, and it's not fun. And, and I mean, you know, every pilot, I don't care how skilled you think you are. Every pilot is always going to be faced with a situation in their career where they're stunned for a second and they don't know what to do. And, you know, someone told me early, uh, told me early, fall back on your training, fall back on your experience, go into mental autopilot and do what you're trained to do. And don't deviate from that. Even if you think you know better, don't deviate from it. Always fall back to your training. That's very important. Um, and as far as a third goes, um, you know, I would, I would have to say like, uh, don't cheat yourself when you're, when you're in the sim, it's very, and this maybe even goes along with point two, but what I, what I do in the sim is I get the check ride over and done with as quickly as possible. Um, as far as training goes, I maximize every second. And I think training is so important, man. It's like, you have to have a solid foundation to fall back on for that point too when you fall, when you when you freeze up right so put yourself in every situation possible even if you know you know even if it's a massive unsurvivable tailwind shear ask them to do it you know see what it's like know what you're going to expect and know what you need to do i love it those are good i love it man those are awesome well steve thank you so much for coming on the podcast i really appreciate it uh, if anyone can find you where would you send them to obviously uh youtube instagram websites whatever you want uh, give yeah, a little quick so, shout out yeah so on on instagram i'm sg nomad sg underscore nomad um on twitter which is kind of my biggest platform it's uh jtt steve just at, at jtt steve and then uh instagram or i'm sorry uh, youtube is speed tape films and you can actually follow us along on our adventures uh, with speed tape films we, we i bring a camera along and my father's a jazz musician every single episode has really good jazz in it and i try to keep it entertaining and you're not going to see endless videos of atc communications and takeoffs and landings this is for the real pilot who sees enough of that bs uh, in their day job this is like playing golf in iceland um eating cool food in cyprus like stuff like that and and good music and i try to make it fun Love so it. check it out it's awesome, man. Well, Steve, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. We'll debrief a little bit and then I appreciate it. Hope you have a good one. All right. Thanks, Justin.
And that's a wrap on episode 189 of the Pilot Pilot Podcast. It's time to go to bed, so I'm going to keep this outro short. I hope you guys are staying safe, and as always, happy flying.